Our series is called One, and the idea, of course, is that our message unites. We have a message that unites us. We stand every week and we, we say it. We say the Apostles' Creed that we're not just about, as the Latin says, cogito. We're not just about what we think, that we have views on God, but that there has been a revelation a creed that unites us. But we're entering into a season of heightened politics, right? And the rhetoric that is divisive has begun. Politics often does divide. Even in the midst of people who are committed to a common cause, a common country. Politics can, uh, can get intertwined in our message, and we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't reduce our message to being something that is just politicized. Because we have to remember. We have to remember the origin of the word of politics. Going back to the Latin for politics, poly, which means many, and ticks, which means blood-sucking creatures. <laughs> But Paul is excited about his message, a message that has been given to him, that he's received by revelation, a message that unites, that brings people together, because it's primarily about news, not views. Hear God's word this morning from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner... For Christ Jesus, now let me pause there and say this, let me point something out. Paul's not speaking from a place of political leveraged power. He's speaking from a place of weakness and service. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Now, let me pause again and say, I know that Paul's sentences are really long, right? And it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss his overriding point, that the message he's received is not something that has come from the best minds of the day. It's not come by committee. It's come by revelation. It's been gifted, removing the human element. He goes on, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, 
which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. May God add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy word. Let's, let's pray together. Father, help us this morning to walk not by sight, but by faith. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My grandfather used to say, don't talk about religion or politics out to dinner with friends. Don't talk about religion and politics. And the reason was that we can often find ourselves having hoof-in-mouth disease. You know what that is, right? Hoof-in-mouth disease? Where you say something you think is assumed by everyone in the room, but it's not necessarily so. He said, don't talk about religion and politics when you're out to dinner with, with strangers or with friends, because, you know, especially if you, let's just say you've driven all the way to Tallahassee in the same car, you've got to drive all the way back in the same car. Because sometimes we share views or ideas that quickly tread on feelings. But see, what Paul's excited about here is not views. He's talking about news. News that unites. But even Jesus, when when you look at the way that Jesus conducted himself, he wasn't always concerned about people's feelings. There were a couple of different ways he confronted people, even at the cost of the way people felt about it. He confronted two ways that we tend to live life on our own, apart from God. One is to use the law as leverage, moralism. The other is to live life on our own autonomously, apart from the law, to be a law unto ourselves. The fancy word is antinomianism, or no law. We are a law unto ourselves. So Jesus wasn't always concerned about people's feelings. He wanted to make sure that people understood that when you use the law moralistically as leverage, you hurt people. And when you disregard the law or become a law unto yourselves, you hurt yourself. You don't so much break the law as you break yourself on it. So Jesus was very clear in the way that he confronted people, especially when it was harmful to other people and harmful to themselves. But Paul's message here stands in a different place. It's to say that there is a message that we have that is attractive and inviting. It is inclusive 
And it is all-encompassing. Because, and here's, here's where we're going. It's a message about God for all people that unites. It's a message centered on God. It's about God directed at the world that unites us all. That's why Paul is bubbling over with enthusiasm. That's why he can't seem to put a period at the end of his sentences. That's why he's so excited to share what is good news. So let's take a look at this message. God-centered, world-directed, uniting. First, it's God-centered. It's news about God. It's revealed. He keeps saying this over and over again. It's gifted to him. It's given to him. He received it. And throughout time and eternity, philosophers have recognized that there are several different ways we know something. That we know by reason, by experience, and by revelation. That there are aha moments, there are epiphanies that we have. Well, we don't know where it came from. It wasn't that we reasoned through it. It wasn't that we had experience. It just came to us. And in this case, Paul is saying, this isn't something that I have come up with. This isn't something that the best minds came together. This is something that is God-centered and is received. And the point is this. There is a God. And it's not me. It's not you. It's not us. There is a God. And he has revealed himself as not one of those measurable things. The most renowned atheist in the world... Anthony Flew is the man whose argument against the existence of God has been the basis of all of those modern, popular atheists that you do know, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and the like. They would look to Anthony Flew as, as their mentor in the faith. Now, I say the faith, I'm being not tongue in cheek, I'm being very literal. See, Anthony Flew has drawn this conclusion. He says, I go where the evidence leads. And where the evidence has led me is that atheism is a faith-based position. He's written it even within the last five years, causing a big stir in the academic community, but especially those who have written so sharply against people who believe. You know, there, there's, there's been this, this charge directed at the church that the reason you believe, you must just have some need to believe. That is a coping mechanism. Well, they, they, what Flew is saying is it's equally true that, that, that people who discount belief in God, the existence of God, may equally be charged with some psychological need not to believe there is a God. And so at the very least, the idea in terms of reason of the question of God's existence is a wash, right? It cancels out. You can't stand here and receive the charge that, 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 that we have a faith-based position and that people who discount or disbelieve God don't have a faith-based position. They do. There's no proving that God does not exist. 
just because you assert that the only thing that's real is what is measurable and the only thing that is measurable is what is real. That's an assertion that's based, it's hanging in the air. It's a cyclical argument. If you say it's based on the evidence, what evidence? You've just told me that, 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 only, that the only thing that's real is what can be measured. Well, what's the evidence of that? Well, what's, what's measurable? Well, that's a cyclical argument. And so the idea here, Anthony Flew is saying, these things cancel each other out. And so what's amazing to me then is when you look at that and you look at where it, where it leaves us, it leaves us with a choice, a confrontation, with what's real ultimately. And what's wrong with us as a people? And when I put those two things together and say, what's real and, and what's wrong with us? I have, to, I, I have to just sit back at the mystery of the scriptures. Because what Paul is saying is, what's wrong with us is that we're broken. We're self-centered. Our brokenness is basically self-centered. And my question to you is, how can anything but a message outside of us call us outside of us? Do you see? Do you see what's happening here? A God who lives and moves and has his being outside of everything that we can measure has spoken, has entered into what is measurable, has humbled himself, making himself a servant on our behalf to intervene between our self centeredness and what we really need. To intervene, to stand in that place, and to act on our behalf, even to reveal himself fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Tim, that's a particular point of view. That's, that's your view that Jesus is Lord. Well, yes, but here's, here's the thing. The idea of grace itself, the idea of grace itself has, has to be the most beautiful idea of all human history, that God would take on the problem that we know we have, and that He, by His invitation, would exchange life for life. If it's not true, then it, it ought to be. <laughs> you see how it resonates? You see, even it's even reasonable. How can we, a self-centered people, with our primary problem being our self-centeredness, call ourselves out of ourselves? Paul's saying, we don't have to. We have a message that's centered on God, not on people, that's bent on service, not on power. That even at the place of suffering is powerful because of God's work in our life. Not because of our voting block or because of our leveraging of what's more reasonable. And so the news is good. It's not views, it's news. It's news that God has acted in history and that he has, through the church, revealed himself. Through the scriptures, revealed himself, ultimately through Christ, revealed himself to us. There is a God. And it's not us. And that's square one of dealing with the problem that we all have. But second of all, 
Not only is it a message or is it news that's centered on God, it's a message directed at the world, at all the world, at everyone. One of the charges that, uh, other charges that we receive is that we are exclusive, that we believe there's only one way to God because we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. But what's being said here is that there's a particular message that God has for humanity. That He loves the world that He made. That he is in active pursuit of everyone. And that it is an invitation that is directed at the world. At the world. You know, some people these days would say, you know what, that's, not, that's still not fair enough. It's not the quality of it. We need the quantity. We need, we, need to, we need to have a perspective that's secular, that's pluralistic, so that everybody's views are sort of viewed on the same level, right? Pluralism. Now, there's a problem with that. It's not, it's not fair in the way that it says it's fair. Pluralism saying, you know, we all have different views on God and they're all equal. They're all equally valid. And we just need to let everybody have a seat at the table. But the table itself is not a table of invitation to people who have convictions. It is an exclusive table that says you must see everything as equally valid or you're not invited to this table. You know, the, the illustration for this comes from Leslie Newbigin's book. And, it, it, and, and it's the book, I think, if you're familiar with worldviews, everything that you've heard about worldviews, I believe, comes from Leslie, Newbigin, Leslie Newbigin's book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Leslie Newbigin was a missionary to uh, India for 40 years, and he lived in a very pluralistic setting. And he anticipated what we're facing in our day and age of a doctrine of pluralism. Not just a generosity of views, but a doctrine of pluralism. Now, let me illustrate what I mean by this. The charge that's leveled at the church is actually the people that are leveling the charge are the ones guilty of being narrow. Let me, let me prove it to you. The illustration is of an elephant. You've probably heard this before, where a king draws his courtiers together and he says, let me prove to you, let me show you that no religion has it right. Okay? So he brings in five uh, blind men and he says, uh, walk up to this elephant and tell me what you, what you see. And so one blind man puts his hand on, on his side and one puts uh, his hand on his leg and the other one puts his hand on his trunk, the other on his, on his tusk. And each one describes something different. It, it's like a wall. An elephant is like a wall. An elephant is like he's grabbing the ear. It's like a big leaf. Uh, he's grabbing his leg. It's like a, a tree. And he says, you see, you see, now I've demonstrated to you an image of what it means to be pluralistic, to be fair, that everyone's view, everyone, everyone's religion has some particular view of God, but nobody has it all right. But here's the problem with the illustration. The perspective is omniscient. Where, how did the king come to have the perspective of standing over all these other perspectives? Where and on what basis does the king have the truth? 
Where and on what basis does the king say that all religions are equally valid? You see, that is a particular uh, individualistic, autonomous expression of faith. It is a perspective that is very narrow. Because it says, you must believe this one doctrine, that there is no absolute truth, and that's the absolute truth. And Paul is saying something different. He's saying, look, this is a message that comes from God. It calls us out of itself. It calls us out of ourselves. It's based on God. It's directed at the world as an invitation. And he's saying this. How can you get any more inclusive than God? Pierced, crucified, tortured, looking out into the face of his enemies and saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I cannot imagine, you cannot imagine, any more beautiful invitation, more inclusive invitation than that. You say, well, it's an invitation, but not everybody believes it. Well, that's true. Now, imagine that you got an invitation to a party, right? You got an invitation to a party, and you went to the party, and you came home, and your neighbor was standing out there and said, you went to that party. You went without me. Yes, I did. Did you get an invitation? And he says, yes, I did. I got an invitation. Why didn't you go? Well, I just didn't. But you went without me. You are so exclusive. I can't believe you went to that party without me. You're so exclusive. Didn't you get an invitation? Yes, I did. Why, why didn't you respond? It doesn't matter. You are so exclusive. And you can go around and around with that argument. But that is exactly what's being said. This is a message that is directed at everyone. Everyone. It says it right there in the text, right in the middle of the passage. For everyone. It's an invitation. And so, we can be bold. We can be bold that our message unites. Not that we're in some holy club. Not that we've got the truth and we've got it better than you and we've got it all figured out and, and the rest of you are all going to hell. But they say, we have a message that is revealed, it's God-centered, it's world-directed from a God who so loved the world that he made. We can be bold. He says in, in verse 8, and he says in verse 12, two things that we have to pay attention to. Paul says, here's what unites. Here's what unites. Humility about ourselves, but boldness about our message. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, what we suffer from today is a humility in the wrong place. Humility has settled upon the organ of conviction. Our convictions. Humble about our convictions? Where it was never meant to be. Man was meant to be humble about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And that has been reversed. Well, that's a problem. Because if there is a God, He's outside of what can be measured. 
and he can certainly speak into our lives, then there is a truth that can be received by faith. And it's a little bit like this, and here's what it looks like. It looks like you're on a hike, and you're, you're making your way up a path, and you trip over a log or a, a stump that you didn't see, and you realize, I have been humbled, <laughs> right? I have been humbled. There is a God, and it's not me. I have been humbled. I'm a self-centered person. I've been called out. I have been humbled. There are lots of different views about God, but there is only one God and a God who calls us to a life that is outside of ourselves. I've been humbled. And so it's like this. You've tripped on that stump and you say to the people coming behind you, you say, watch out for the stump. But you don't say it like, I found it first. <laughs> right? You don't say it like, I've got it. I've got this. It's my stump. My name's on it. I've got it all figured out, people. Y'all are a bunch of ignoramuses, all right? Is that how you say ignoramus? Ignorami. I don't know what it is. Y'all are a bunch of idiots. I have it figured out because I stumbled on the stump first, right? No. With humility and boldness, conviction, we say, watch out for that stump of self-centeredness that can break you permanently. And so Paul says, even though I'm the least of all the saints, grace was given to me to preach to all the world. At the time, the world was what? The population was less than the United States. So you had the Roman Empire in this place where, where Jesus was living and moving and walking. And, and, and the center of the pinnacle of religious moral conviction, but Jesus was confronting it. And then you had the rest of the world living apart from God with views. And Paul's saying, we have news, not views. We have a God-centered message, which is an invitation for, for and to the world that he so loves. That unites when it humbles us and when we're bold because we know by faith its source is not us but Him.